following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Paul uh, further defines and, and describes these two groups. And he really describes them in these terms. In this passage, before he talked about the weaker and the stronger, he changes his terminology, and now he's going to describe them really in terms of those who have freedom in Christ versus those who are controlled by doubt. Or in his own actual words, he would say those who have faith and those who are ruled by doubts. So let's look, first of all, at these two groups and try to describe a little bit more who they are and why they got that way. Uh, First of all... um, Paul starts off in verse 14 by saying, Look, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Uh, He also says in verse 22, uh, uh, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment for what he approves or what he thinks is right. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. So he's talking about freedom, faith, and doubt. Well, what is the freedom about? What is, where does this faith come from? And what is the doubt that he's talking about? Oh, well, first of all, let's take the group of the, the freedom in Christ people. Okay? Uh, the free, and, and Paul would put himself in this group. And he says, I am 100%. He says, I am fully persuaded and convinced. He uses a double positive here to emphasize this. He says, I'm not, I'm not at all confused on this. I believe 100% that there is no such thing as unclean food. Okay. It says, I'm convinced of this in Christ. Uh, some debate on exactly what that means, but through both the teaching of Christ as well as through his own personal relationship with Christ, he had come to this point of conviction. Right? And for Paul, this is huge because he was himself uh, a former, very zealous Jew right? who was very serious and very strict about the law, very strict about keeping it all. But he came come to a place of true freedom in Christ, where he was able to really throw off all of the laws and regulations of the Old Testament. And for him, he experienced in that this incredible, wonderful freedom uh, to, to live and to serve Christ that way. Um, now, when we talk about what we mean by throwing off the law, we've got to be kind of a little careful here, right? Because Paul doesn't mean by this that there were no rules or laws and that everything is now free game in Christ, right? And there's no such thing as sin anymore. That's not what he's saying. It's very important that we look at this in the context of what he's talking about here. And what he's talking about here is specifically people who, out of sincere devotion, felt they needed to follow uh, the Old Testament laws in order to be walking in obedience. He's talking here about liberty, not license. And specifically, the things he's talking about in this context are food and drink. Uh, in the previous uh, verses, he talks about days. Right? Um, he's not talking here about the choices and actions of people. Right? Uh, in other places in Romans, as well as other places in, the, in his letters, as well as the whole New Testament, it's clear that when we choose to disobey God, when we choose to do things that God's clearly told us we should not do, it's sin. And Paul's not saying here, well, you know, in, in Jesus, I can just forget all of that. And I can just do whatever I want. It's 
not what he's saying. He's speak, speaking here specifically of these restrictions, these rules, these regulations that primarily center around things like food and drink. Uh, to summarize it kind of in our own modern language, he's really talking about our attitude towards everything that God has created. Right? And that's what he's talking about. Food, drink, days. Uh, he's talking about how we use the gifts of creation. And Paul says that the gospel produces a freedom to use and enjoy all that God has made. Right? Uh, if we use it according to its designed and intended purpose. Okay? Even there, uh, just because God created it doesn't mean we can use it any way we want. Right? Uh, God created the world good. He created, put Adam and Eve in the garden. He said everything is good. And he wanted them to enjoy it by using it according to its designed and intended purpose. Uh, and that's true for us. And, and the gospel is restoring that. The gospel restores the right order between us and our relationship to creation. So now we, Paul says we really have this amazing freedom. There's no such thing as an unclean thing in itself. Right, so pork, as he's speaking to Jews, he can say, look, pork is not unclean in itself. There's nothing magical or cursed about a pig that makes its meat any different than any other animal. Right? Of course, now this would be radical right, to the Jews who were reading this, where this has been ingrained in, your, in you your whole life. Um, and, and for most of us, it's hard for us to grasp it because we live in an age of, of quite a bit of freedom. Probably most of us didn't grow up with those kind of restrictions on our diet or on our schedules. And so we're, we're used to freedom. Um, and, and that's a result of the gospel. Um, now, of course, like I said, anything can be used to a wrong end. And Paul would agree with that. In fact, Scripture itself can be used to an evil end. Anything can be used in an evil way. Uh, opium has good medicinal purposes. Morphine's derived from it. And if you're in pain, it's a good thing. Heroin is also derived from it and used to be sold as medicine. Um, but most people would see that now as not truly medicinal, right? So it has good uses, it has bad uses. Right? Uh, scripture, same, same, same way. It's interesting, uh, Adolf Hitler, when he was building his case against the Jews in Germany, used Scripture to build his case. He used Scripture and he quoted heavily Martin Luther to build his justification for what he was about to do against the Jews. Right, so anything can be abused and misused. And Paul's not talking about that here. Right? He's talking about its rightful, legitimate use and purpose. And he says that in Christ there's great freedom to eat, drink, to enjoy all that God has made, to really be from restrict, heavy restrictions about things like clothe, uh, clothing, uh, times, days, things that we would call culture, music, art, right? God's created the world to enjoy all this stuff. Um, but he says that, that in order to use it and enjoy it appropriately, it is, it is a matter of faith. And he, he identifies in verses 1 through 12 that the strong are those who have solid faith in this area and the weak are those who don't. And, and he goes on to say here that, the, in fact, the weak have doubts about this. Right? They're plagued with convictions, and they just can't quite see it as true. So for the Jew, you know, this big slab of ham, there's, there's just doubt. There's just something wrong with it, right? And as much as they might want to partake, as much as they might want to experience that liberty, 
For some of them, their faith, their doubts were causing problems. Uh, In the context of Rome, it probably did not have anything to do with pork, by the way. Uh, It most likely was an issue of meat being offered to idols, right? And they they saw that as just just wrong, right? It's just wrong. Um, Well, what does he mean when he says that they they doubted or their faith was inadequate? Uh, and, And I would explain it this way. Paul doesn't, but I will. Okay, so I'm taking some liberty here. But I think what he's talking about here is a person who doesn't understand the whole gospel. They really only get one half of it, right? And uh, if we, we could still illustrate this a lot of ways, but maybe the book of Romans is the easiest, that there is, in a sense, two halves to the gospel. In the book of Romans, those two halves would be laid out this way. Chapters 1 through 5 would really talk about the first half of the gospel. So what's the first half of the gospel? Chapters 1 through 5. The just shall live by faith, right? It talks about being justified. It's, it's, the, it's the part of the gospel that means Jesus' death on the cross, his sacrifice for us, purchases us our, our salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were under God's condemnation and judgment. And Jesus came and he, in his own death, in his own life, in his own sacrifice, paid the penalty for our sin. And so we know that, as Paul says, the, the just shall live by faith. When we put our faith in what Jesus did for us, we are justified. In other words, we're made right with God. And we have right standing so that we can say, we've been saved. I have salvation. I have new life in Christ. Uh, and that's one half of the gospel. And most people, well, it, well, let me put it this way. All people who are true followers of Christ get that half, right? Because if you don't get that half, you're not really a Christian, right? You need that. That's the first step. It's the entry into life with Christ, into being his child, right? So Paul would say that all of them have faith at that level. They all get the first half. But what, he, what he's talking about is this group of weak people who are weak in understanding the second half of the gospel. Well, what's the second half? Chapter 6 through 8, Right? Chapter 6 through 8, Paul is continuing on with his explanation of the gospel in Romans 6 through 8. But in 6 through 8, he's not talking about salvation anymore. He's not talking about being made right with God through Christ's death. He's talking about walking in the newness of life and really living up to what God has done in us, living out that life in what we call, in theological terms, we call sanctification. Right? That we put away sin. We put away those habits. We put away those things in our old man, our own self, our old life that trip us up all the time. That, that keep us from walking in, in, in holiness and in righteousness and in, in the path that God wants of us. Well, how do we do that? How do we get sanctified? How do we see our life transformed and changed more and more into the character and likeness of Christ? Well, we do that by trying really hard by having really good devotions, by being a good person, right? No, wrong. You're all supposed to go, no! Because that's not the gospel, right? That's like saying we get saved by being a good person. Paul would say that's not the gospel. And when it comes to the second half of the gospel, he would say we don't become a good person by trying to be good. It is the work of the cross, and it's the work of Christ that does that, that produces that goodness in us. That's the second half of the gospel. 
And how do we gain that? Well, same way we got the first half, by faith. We believe that the work and power of the cross uh, not only brings us to right relationship with God, but produces His life in us and changes us, sanctifies us, makes us pure and holy so that we walk in new life. We have a new lifestyle, a new way of serving God by grace and through the power of the cross. Right? And what Paul is talking about here is this, these people who, um, one group got that. Right? And they get the full, whole, both halves of the gospel. And so it produces in them freedom. Well, how does that freedom get produced? Well, let's maybe talk about how it doesn't get produced. Um, which, by the way, the freedom, the freedom is from sin, death, and the law. Okay, Paul talks about all three of those things in chapters 6, 7, and 8. We have been set free from the law because Christ fulfilled the law so that we are no longer obligated to it. He says in, in 6, 7, and 8. Um, so what it means is that we have a new motivation. What motivates our behavior if we get the whole gospel? Why do we do good things? Why do we try to, to please God? Well, we do it because we have been moved. We've really been staggered by the incredible gift of grace, Right? we come to understand all that the gospel means and we see what Jesus did for us, when we see that God the Father sent His Son and laid on Him our sin, we're, we're, we're struck with that truth. We don't yawn and go, oh, that's nice. It wasn't that just special, right? But if we really get that, we go, wow, what God did for me, right? Uh, and, and we are burdened with great gratitude and joy. Right? We are overwhelmed with that incredible gift that we know we didn't deserve. Have you ever got a gift like that where you just felt like somebody paid, spent way too much money on you, right? Just recently, some of our staff at, at uh, Bonson Rock Children's Home wanted to take me out for lunch. I think they're all feeling worried about me that my wife is not here and I'm going to starve to death or something. So they took me, uh, Lume and, and, and Bo took me uh, to Sizzler, of all places. And I'm thinking, why can't we just go to some Pad Thai shop? They take me to Sizzler. They want to go to Sizzler. And it's expensive. And, uh, and you know, they, they, they wanted to pay. They wanted to buy my lunch. And, uh, you know, they don't make a lot. And I'm thinking, for them, for me, <laughs> this is a lot of money, right? And I kind of walked away from that just feeling uh, unworthy, and just incredibly grateful that they would give me and bless me with such a gift, right? Uh, that they would go to that extent. Well, that's, the, that's, the, that's gospel motivation when we put that in terms of our relationship with God. He's done so much for us. If we get that, we should be moved with amazing gratitude and gratefulness. And the, the, the net result of that is that we should long to do the right thing to please Him, right? That's gospel motivation. Uh, so we, because we are approved, we, we long to obey. Not, we want to obey in order to be approved, right? But Paul says that those weak in faith, the, the, those who doubt, only get the first half. And here's what happens if you only get the first half of the gospel, you don't understand the power of the cross to deal with the second to sanctify us, we will fall into that mode where we believe, you know, grace is not enough. Grace was enough to save me, 
But grace by itself is not enough to keep me on the right path. Surely, if you don't get the second half of the gospel, you're convinced that if, if you just let people go and you give them that kind of freedom, they're just going to be sinning all over the place, right? They're going to be sinning everywhere. And you know how it is with one sin. You start with one sin, you may start with, you know, just a little bit of drugs, but pretty soon you're going to be a coke addict. That's the way it always works. Always, right? And if you don't get grace, you don't get the power of gospel motivation, the power of that work to motivate us to walk in obedience, to long to please God, then you feel we've got to have rules. We've got to have law, right, to keep us in check. And so that's, uh, that's the weakness of their faith, right? Because they are weak in that understanding of the second half of the gospel. They feel we must have rules, Okay, you've got you to control these things. You've got to keep people in check. And uh, you can't let go of law. Uh, so for these people, uh, they, they have doubts. They are not convinced that they can let go. And it's because of those doubts that they have convictions about uh, what they eat, what they drink, that they cannot let go of. And Paul says about these things, and, and, and Paul says, look, they're wrong, okay? They're confused. It's a, a byproduct of their lack of faith and lack of understanding the gospel. But here's the deal, he says. He says, whoever has doubts, they are condemned if they eat. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Okay, Paul doesn't say, look, they're, they're, they're wrong, they're confused. They just need to get their faith together. And, you know, uh, they don't have to worry about it. No, he doesn't say that. He says, look, if they believe it's wrong to eat food offered to idols or to drink whatever, whatever their hang-up is, he said, for them to participate in that is sin. Right? Not sin in the sense that it's a moral absolute, that if everybody did it, it would be wrong. But he says that if they violate their conscience... They go against their deep inner convictions and they go against the place where their faith is at that time in their life. For them, it would be sin. Right? It would be wrong. And not only that, but he goes on to say that if they act without faith, if they take steps in that direction, that they actually incur the danger of great judgment. Verse 14, he says this, uh, you know, It is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Uh, then in verse 23, whoever doubts is condemned. Um, for, if your, uh, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you, you no longer walk in love, but by what you eat, you destroy the one for whom Christ died. Paul uses really hard language here. He says, you run the risk of destroying them spiritually. So when people who are weak in their, in their faith, when they uh, sin... When they go against their conscience, Paul says they are at risk of great spiritual peril. It's not just a little bit of a hang-up. You run the risk of unraveling the foundation of their faith. Right, so it's, it's serious stuff. Uh, well, why, is it, why does it do that? Well, because um, all things must be done by faith. Uh, we must operate within the boundaries of our own conscience. Uh, 
What are some weaker brother issues? Of course, in our day, for the most part, uh, food offered to idols is not going to be an issue, right? But there probably still are, are, are areas like this where people who are young in their faith, who are not as developed in their spiritual maturity, would have areas that for them uh, would be sinful, that for us would be free. I'm not going to go into a long list, but just let me, here's a few to think about. Um, uh, are we aware, we, we may not eat food offered to idols, but are, are we aware of how idolatry in Thailand causes Thai Christians to think about things? Right? We need to be very careful and sensitive, especially where we have Thai friends, uh, Thai believers that we work with, or co-workers. How do Thai traditions rooted in the idolatry of Buddhism, affect or influence them. Uh, two, two easy examples, Songkran and Loi Kratong, big holidays that for us are a big national water fight and a, and a great chance to shoot out fireworks. Right? Is it wrong for us to participate in those things? I think, I think Paul would say, nothing is unclean in itself. Even though the water out of the moat, the, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's pretty unclean, but... Uh, can you participate in those things freely? Sure. But have you considered its impact or influence on your Thai fellow believers? Have you asked them? It's interesting. I've asked several Thai Christians and pastors, you know, and it's funny the answers you get. Some will favor one holiday and not the other. Others flop it around. Some will not favor either, right? They're, they're working it out. They're wrestling through that. Some of it is a matter of their own weakness of faith, not understanding the gospel, right? Paul says it doesn't matter. For them, if they think participating in, in Loi Kratong is a sin, they should not do it, right? Are, are we aware of that? And are you aware of how your influence may cause them to stumble? Right? You've got to be careful about that. Um, other issues that may be more Western, you know, things like wine and drink, tobacco, and gluten, apparently, right? Uh, can all be stumbling blocks. Maybe not gluten, but... Right? Uh, for some people, that's a boundary that they cannot cross, right? Others can freely enjoy those things, right? And it, and it gets worse. If you're from Colorado now, apparently marijuana's on the list. They just had some big marijuana festival yesterday in Denver, and I missed it. Wow. Um, so those, those are specific things that, uh, that would, would be issues that we would need to address. Um, I would take it a little even broader, though, in the context of what's going on in this passage, that maybe a little even broader application would be not only the things like uh, food and drink, holidays, you know, if you keep a Sabbath, don't keep a Sabbath. Uh, some churches, you know, you can't do anything, basically anything fun on a Sabbath, you know. I mean, there's, there's those kind of things, right? Uh, beyond that, I would also include what I would call quirky and immature doctrine and beliefs, right? That for some people are a big deal. And we may laugh at, but for them it's serious. Uh, translations of the Bible. I mean, I, and I'll t- share a little later a story about a guy who, you know, Mr. King James only, you know, and that was, it was good enough for the Apostle Paul. It, it's good enough for us, right? Uh, and they're serious about that. Now, I don't know that it would be an issue of sin, but it is an immature, it is an issue of immature faith, right? And it's serious for them. Uh, 
Some people get very hung up on charismatic gifts or the creation and age of the universe. I mean, I, uh, I know a situation where uh, one person told another that if they didn't believe in a young earth, you know, literal seven-day creation, 6,000-year-old world, that they really couldn't be a Christian. I mean, it was serious stuff, right? Um, issues of end times, worship styles. You can go on the list with these the- theological doctrinal issues that are not core to the gospel, that are secondary doctrines. That doesn't mean we should, am I saying we shouldn't have opinions on those? We can. What I'm saying is, in the context of what Paul's talking about here, these can be issues of division, right? And they're issues of division that I think come out of a weak faith, right? They are immature in their understanding of the gospel and what's really important, right? So what is our response to that? Whether it's, uh, you know, as we encounter these people who have these issues, what's our response to that? Well, Paul says basically you need... You who are strong, you who experience all this freedom, you need to limit your freedom, okay? which is actually an oxymoron. <laughs> Limited freedom. right? Paul says you have freedom, but you can't use it uh, without paying attention to its effect on those around you. Be careful with your freedom if you have it, if you're to that place of faith. Uh, in verse 12, he says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. He says, don't ever do that. Do not use your, your liberty, your freedom, as a stumbling block for somebody who is just not there yet. Verse 15, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, is distraught and despondent by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And then he says this, By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Powerful words, right? Uh, Be careful how you use your freedom. Verse 20, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble in what he eats. Right? Uh, how do we cause a brother to stumble? I think there's two ways that that can happen. First of all, that by our example and by our influence, we influence them to violate their own conscience. In other words, we, by our basically peer pressure, our pressure, we cause them to do something that they believe in their heart is wrong and sinful. Uh, And our influence... Uh, he calls us the strong, and we're really strong in, in several different levels. Strength can, is not only just spiritual maturity, but strong can be a position of older to younger. Right? So if you're older, uh, meaning you have just older in years, or also because you've been a Christian for a lot longer, you have a certain strength and influence to younger believers, whether younger in age or just younger in the faith. Right? They look up to you. They look up to your example. And... Uh, if they're a person who, you know, say, take alcohol, you know, they, they, they came out of alcoholism, they, uh, their parents were alcoholics, and they see alcohol as a horrible evil, and they see you freely drinking, right? And they, they don't, they, they're not in a place where they can reconcile that with Christianity. But they see you as somebody older who's been a Christian for a long time and you do it. Uh, be careful that you don't influence them 
to do something that for them would be wrong. Uh, there, there is the uh, the majority to this, the majority to the minority, right? Uh, sometimes the weaker brother is in a minority, and the majority would say, "Ah, yeah, you can do this." This is the situation in Rome. Yeah, you can eat meat offered to idols. It's no big deal. God, you know, you pray for it. God fixes it, right? To the minority Jews who are struggling with with this, right? It puts pressure on them to maybe do what would violate their conscience. Um, the educated to the less educated. We've got to be careful as we come from very well-educated, affluent Western countries. When we come into the East where people may not have our level of status, of, of, uh, of education, they look up to us, right? They look up to our example. And if we say, oh, yeah, you can do this, okay, they may go, wow, if they said so, I don't think it's right, but okay, right? So we're using our influence, our strength, in a way that's leading them to sin. Because they can't do it from faith. They only do it because they see us doing it. They think, well, I don't know, right? right? That's what Paul's talking about. Using our position of power to influence them against their own conscience. Right? Um, and he says that when they do that, they sin. And when they sin, they are in danger of being destroyed spiritually. Okay, Paul uses really hard language here. You know, that we would be destroying the very work of God. Okay, how horrible. If in the use of our liberty, so that we can enjoy our freedom, we unravel the very work of God. Um, the second area, though, so one would be to cause them to sin. The other, uh, he says in verse 16, a very strange cryptic phrase. He says, Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Do not let what you regard good being literally blasphemed. Uh, well, what does he mean by that? Well, what is the good? Well, there's a huge debate over this. But I think, I think my, my take on this is ultimately what he's talking about here is the gospel itself. He says, look, your faith, your, what's made you strong is your faith and conviction about the gospel. He says, don't let what your, your, your faith, your conviction about the gospel uh, be spoken of in a way that is blasphemous. What does he mean by that? Well, I think what he's saying is this, and I've seen this, where a person, because of their foolish use of freedom, uh, actually causes the gospel to be blasphemed by new believers. In other words... They see something that for them is horrifically wrong. Given their background and their tradition, they look at it and they go, Christians could never do that. And then they see you do it and they say, they say this, if that's what the gospel is, then forget the gospel. Right? I don't want a religion that's like that. It's immature on their part, but it's where they are. And we could have that effect, and it's happened, where people have had that effect where they have caused the gospel itself to be blasphemed because they have been foolish with their use of freedom. Um, we, should use Jesus, we should use freedom as Jesus used it. How did Jesus use his freedom? How that? Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. What did Jesus do with his freedom? Well, he laid it all aside. He laid it out, all down and he died as a sacrifice for the weak. Right? Uh, Paul says we should give up, we should forfeit those freedoms if necessary uh, to protect our brother. Now, does that mean we can never exercise our freedoms? Well, of course we can. You just got to be careful where, right? 
given the context, right? When you are in a situation where you are with weaker brothers, be careful how you push your freedom or your ideas. Uh, and finally, let me let's talk briefly about the, the, the positive side of this. Uh, he gives us in verses 17 through 20 some helpful ideas for what we should be doing. He says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, literally tear down the work of God. Paul says, what should we be about? Well, we should be about, uh, we should be carpenters, right? He says, people, the church of God is under construction. And we are to be, in his words literally, we're to be building the church. This is the word he, he uses here, this word upbuilding. It means literally to build a house. We're to be building people up, right? Uh, and then the next verse he says, don't for the sake of food tear it down. Okay, don't be the wrecking ball, right? So as we look at our relationships with unbelievers, or with new believers, with these weak and immature, Paul says we need to have as our focus to build up the body of Christ. And he gives us a couple tips on that. First of all, he says you need to choose the right building material. He says, what is the kingdom of God about? Is the kingdom of God about material things, food and drink? He says, no, it is not about those things. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness is about our right standing with God and doing the right thing, the loving thing, towards our brother. Peace is about being reconciled to God and in the same way reconciling relationships with others. Right? Joy is about joy in God alone. It means deriving our satisfaction and pleasure in life not only from God's gifts, even more so from the giver of gifts. Our joy is to be in God. We're to celebrate and enjoy Him, not just His stuff. Right? That's the stuff of the kingdom. Um, these are all, he says, done in the Spirit. There are fruits, there are things that the Holy Spirit produces in us. And these are the building materials of the kingdom. Right? The things that we should be investing in people's lives is righteousness, peace, and joy. And so he goes and he says, it is therefore vital that we pursue peace. Right? Here's the deal. Uh, not rocket science, but here's how it works. We're to be building each other up in Christ. We're to be building into people's lives righteousness. We're to be building relationships where we treat them right, where we teach them how to treat us right. We're to have peace with people. And we're to enjoy each other as God's children. It's really hard to, to build up, right, when you're in the process of tearing down, right? It, and here's the deal. A wrecking ball makes a really bad hammer, basically. It's a big hammer, right? But if you're trying to nail boards together, it's a little overkill. Right? Same way, uh, plastic explosives, you know, uh, to, to demolish buildings, not a good substance used for glue, Right? But oftentimes in our, our zeal, that's exactly what we do. We disciple people with plastic explosives. We disciple people with wrecking balls. Right? And I'm, I speak from personal experience. Maybe none of you have this, but this is me. Right? Mr. Gung-Ho Enthusiasm knows all the right answers. I'm going to fix people. 
right? I decide discipleship means sorting out all their bad theology so they have all the right answers, right? And to do that, you need dynamite to blast out all their bad ideas, right? So this is how it looked in my life. Back when I first got out of Bible college, uh, I was in a men's Bible study with Mr. King James, right? I told you about Mr. King James. Mr. King James. Uh, Mr. King James was weak in the faith, right? He wrongly understood that the only Bible that was from God was the King James Version, right? Uh, I, I think he was mistaken. And in my zeal to correct him, because I had just graduated from Bible college, I could read Greek, right? I knew that, you know, Paul didn't read the King James, right? He read the Greek. He wrote the Greek, right? And I was going to straighten this guy out because he was thinking wrongly, right? So I went in there with all my wisdom and my insight and my fervor, right? And we had this big, huge debate. I still remember to this day, this Bible study, where we had this whole debate over Bibles and the King James. You know, uh, I was not pursuing peace, right? Now, I don't know why I thought this was good ministry, but I did. I thought I'm doing this guy a favor because I'm going to straighten him out, right? Um, what it did is it damaged our relationship. Could I now build him up? <laughs> yeah, sure, right? It's kind of like, you know, you go in with dynamite, you blow the whole house apart, and you say, now would you let me rebuild your house? I ain't let you near my house, Mr. Dynamite. You stay away, right? You have wrecked it all. Keep your distance, right? How can we build people up when we are destroying relationships? Over what? The King James Bible, right? Who cares? Who cares? Right? I could have read any translation of the Bible. He could only read the King James. So why didn't I just say to him, you know, from now on, our Bible study, we'll just do King James. It happens to be the Bible, right? I can use it. I couldn't do that, right? And because of that, I lost the opportunity to influence him. Now, of course, he wasn't sinning by reading the King James. I don't think I caused him to sin. But I wasn't building him up in Christ. In fact, if anything, I may have entrenched him in his weakness of faith. Because I lost the opportunity to teach him the full story of the gospel, which would have been the one thing that would have helped him grow and mature beyond that. Right? Uh, see, we need to meet people where they are. We need to pursue peaceful relationships with them so that we can build them up. How will we build them up? Well, we meet them where they are, and we build them up not by tearing down their weak ideas, but by building a stronger foundation of the whole gospel. Right? We, need to hear, we need to gain a hearing to help explain to them the second half of the gospel, that part that's missing. We need to strengthen and fortify that part of their understanding and that part of their faith. Right? With righteousness, peace, and joy. Not with my second-hand, not-so-important doctrines that we just you know, fight about. Right? It's only when we get to that point that we can really ground them in the faith. Right? So Paul says, you know, be careful with your freedom. Enjoy it. Be thankful. He says, enjoy it before God. You know, celebrate it. But be sensitive of how you use it. 
Be aware of those around you and where they're at in their faith. Right? Pursue peaceful relationships so you can disciple them and grow them into a fuller understanding of Christ. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.